So I decided, you know, I'm either going to charge enough that I can work hours that aren't going to kill me, or I'm going to have to stop doing this because it's just killing me. That's the voice of Rachel Bergsma, owner of Sawdust and Smoke. And I'm excited to talk with her right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project to getting paid to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Rachel Bergsma, owner of the Saskatoon, Saskatchewan-based furniture company, Sawdust and Smoke. Rachel is a self-taught furniture maker, starting her company from nothing to now having a year waiting list for clients wanting new builds. And yes, it's true. On that journey, she learned how to make amazing furniture, but she also learned how to build a business, how to build a brand, and how to recognize her achievements and use all of that to turn a company that was barely holding on into one that today is successfully thriving. Follow along as we talk about the importance of being the face of your business, what sustainability looks like in the woodworking industry, overcoming imposter syndrome, and more. Rachel shared so much in this episode, so let's get into it and hear her story in her own words. I kind of started Sawdust and Smoke when I moved across the country. So I'm originally born and bred in Ontario uh, and then moved to Saskatchewan, which is a few provinces west. And uh, I moved with just whatever fit in the back of my truck. So got a house out here, kind of noticed that I didn't have any furniture and I couldn't afford any furniture, uh, but I had a circular saw and I had a drill. And then this was the time when like Anna White was really big and everybody was doing those kind of um, beginner plans. And I was like, all right, I could totally do one of these. And the first ones, I i mean, looking back now, I would not have sold those to people, but they bought them. So uh, a few of my friends kind of decided they wanted things and um, I made them for them and then they told their friends. So it kind of grew really organically word of mouth at the beginning, uh, which was really nice. And then I just kind of got a little better, bought it myself a few more tools, um, a sander, so I didn't have to hand sand anything. Um, that was kind of a big step in my business, but that's pretty much how it went. It was just kind of self-taught. Yeah, it, I got really lucky. Um, people talked about it here. Um, it allowed me to kind of grow my business and sort of practice on them. And uh, yeah, it just kind of never stopped. I really love the concept of you moving and and in that move you traveled with more tools than furniture and you just you showed up <laughs> where you were like oh I forgot all the furniture but I have all these tools I might as well build the furniture it's, it's easier to pack tools than furniture sometimes yeah no I was so so broke like furniture was not even on my radar I was like in bachelor mode essentially where I had like a mattress on the floor and I'm like yep yeah, that's good <laughs> but this, yeah, the house that I ended up renting out here was quite a bit bigger than where I had come from. So all of my rooms were so echoey. And uh, yeah, I, people would come over. I had a couch. So that was a good start. I had a couch and a TV. And uh, oh, no, I didn't even have a TV. I had a laptop screen at the time. <laughs> as much as as much as I I'd love to hear the uh, the full listing of furniture you traveled. That's it. That was the whole <laughs> that, thing. All right. Well, there we go. Then then that was that was a short lived conversation on that, and we can jump into the furniture business because that is what we're here to talk about. What what was that drive that you had to make furniture? Yes, you said you didn't have a lot of money and yes you needed to figure out a way to furnish your home but at the same time not everybody automatically goes from i don't have money i'll learn how to build furniture people usually go i don't have money i'll buy cheaper furniture so what was that drive in you 
to really make you want to start building furniture? I mean, honestly, I was on maternity leave at the time. So uh, I was home with my daughter and it was a bit of a, like just to go out and have a creative side and have something that I can see at the end of the day that like, this is how far I've come. This is what I started with. This is what I accomplished at the end of the day was kind of really vital to me um, just to have like a visual representation of, hey, I accomplished something. I wasn't just spit up on and the house is a mess kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, furniture making is one of those things where you basically start with a bunch of flat pieces and hopefully by the end of the day, you can see progress. And that progress was really good for me mentally. So that was kind of the push to keep going at the beginning. That feeling of of actually building something, especially in this digital world that we all find ourselves in, where we are staring at a screen for a majority of the day, that actual physical building of something where it starts from nothing and end of the day, you have something in your hands that you can look at, that you can share is really a driving force that a lot of people who get into this business feel. So I, I completely hear what you're saying with that. But a lot of people leave it there. They love building furniture and they love that concept, but they don't take it into a business. They don't take it that step further. So what was it that made you feel like you could take it a step further because being a hobby woodworker, being a garage builder on the weekends is satisfying, but taking it that step further to actually making a company of it takes that satisfaction and makes it a business. It makes it hard. It, it adds all these other layers. So why did you feel like furniture was the direction that you want to take this? Oh, it's so hard. But when you give a piece that you've made, that you've taken from nothing to something that's beautiful, like when clients send you, hey, this is what I have in mind. Um, I don't really know how to get to that point. This is a piece that I love. Can you make it? And at the beginning, I was like, I don't know. I guess we'll see. Um, as I've gotten a little bit better, it's become a bit easier. But when you get to the point where they've given you just kind of a napkin drawing and you can give them something that they really wanted, something that they've been dreaming about and kind of see their face, see how happy it makes them, uh, especially if it's somebody who doesn't have the skills to do that in the first place. That's a really rewarding part of uh, the business itself. And kind of from a personal ego level, the worse the drawing that I get is and the better the final product I get is, that's a big reward for me. I'm like, man, look at me. I'm so good. Look at that. You're being a little modest when you say you've gotten a little bit better. Your work is impressive and that's why you've had your business for as long as you had. And that's why you have happy clients and continuous paying clients. So let's talk about your client interactions. Let's talk about how when you were starting out, you said you had friends and family who were helpful in getting you started and you could practice on them and you could learn your craft on those original pieces, but eventually it went out into the bigger world. You got clients that weren't directly related to you. And when that happens, that is a big step forward. So let's talk about those first years where you were building your client base and how you went about doing that. Okay. So I used to underprice things. <laughs> uh, when I was first starting, it's such a kind of imposter syndrome where if you're not actually formally trained in something and you're just making it, you're like, what? People aren't going to pay for this. Like, why would I, I can't charge a lot for this. And uh, so the first few things I made were honestly, you talk about people would have bought cheaper furniture. I was the cheaper furniture option for a long time. Um, it took me a long time to sort of get the confidence to say, you know what? No, actually my products are worth what I want to charge for them and what I should be charging for them. So the first clients that I had, I don't think it was as much of a leap of faith on their part as to, they saw pictures of things I had done before and been like, 
yeah, this is like, we're getting a steal here. So it was easier to sort of gain a wider client base, even if it wasn't kind of the profit that it should have been at the time, but it did help me get the name out there. Uh, and then I just kind of gradually increased prices to what they should be and what I believe that they are worth. It's a way that you build your portfolio. You can't necessarily start from day one and sell your pieces for what you would sell them 10 years later when you're an established brand and you have an entire portfolio under your belt. You have to start somewhere and selling pieces for undervalue. I wouldn't say it's great. I wouldn't say it's an amazing business practice and something that people should strive to do, but yeah, no, don't do that. <laughs> but if anybody's but, listening, don't do that. <laughs> but it is a reality. So what would you tell people who are in that same situation where they have a little bit of imposter syndrome? They think I have a furniture company, but I'm the only one who believes it. I'm the only one who can see that and I need to get my stuff out there, but I don't think people are gonna pay me what I know it's worth. So what would you tell people who are in that situation now? I mean, it's so tempting to get into this mindset where you're like, well, if I'm not building, then I'm not making any money. So even if I take a little bit of a hit on it, at least it's something, but you really just cheapen your brand overall. Um, you, I went through a period where people would refer their friends and they had gotten this original ridiculous price. And so they're like, yeah, you know, like this stuff is great. It's so inexpensive. Like it's so cheap. You should message her. And they'd message me. And by that point, like I used to do this thing where the first thing that I built of a particular style or a different product was always like dirt cheap because I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't use plans because I can't follow them. So if this goes horribly for whatever reason, if it doesn't work out, if it you know doesn't hold up, then I don't have as much to refund. So they would tell their friends like, yeah, it's super cheap. These friends would come to me looking for that price and then be pretty upset, kind of get a bad taste in their mouth whenever it's not anywhere close to the same thing. So you kind of shoot yourself in the foot for future clients later on. So, I mean, it's one thing to give your friends and your family these crazy discounts and kind of practice on them. It's another thing to kind of set a precedence for your price level that you're not going to be able to follow through with. It's a situation where in the beginning, you need to think of yourself as successful, even if you're not, even if in the beginning you're not successful, but you need to set, like you said, set that bar high enough that when you do become successful, you don't have to backtrack and then build your brand all over again. Because if you're the cheap person, if you're the cheap furniture that people go to, and that's how you've established yourself, and that's why people are coming to you, and then you get better and you stop becoming the cheap person, you become the appropriately priced furniture maker, then you're going to have to build your brand all over again. Oh, absolutely. And you run into a situation where you're just constantly in this hole where you're not making any profit, where you're like, well, you know, this is what people are willing to pay. And that's really hard to get out once you've kind of set yourself into that role. So how did you get out of it? That's the next question, I guess. That's what people want to know, because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there listening who have done the same thing. They started being the cheap furniture person. And as they progressed, as their skills have progressed, as their designs have progressed and their furniture has gotten better, they've moved on from that. And they're thinking, now I need to make that transition to an appropriately priced furniture company. So how did you do that? Uh, absolutely. So the main thing I did was I stopped promoting myself on things like Kijiji or Craigslist um, because those are places that people are looking for a deal when they're looking for something that's not necessarily brand new. They just kind of, they've got a space, need to fill it. Started going after the clients that I wanted. So I went to home builders and some realtors and uh, at first had to take a little bit of a hit just to kind of get my foot in the door, but they were putting out products for the clients that I wanted. People building new homes, people with a little bit more cash flow, 
people looking for a higher quality in their product. And that's where I wanted to be. So that's what I went after. Now we can get into, and I want to get into the business part of your interaction that you have with the client. But I also want to just take a moment to talk about the confidence, the confidence of you as a furniture maker, because I know that this is something that people struggle with. And you've said when you started, you were basically giving stuff away, but now you have that confidence in your furniture and your craft to be able to turn people away. Was there something in your furniture journey that the light went on, a switch got turned where you said, now, I have this confidence to be able to charge what I need to charge to actually make a living with this? Yeah, I think there were a bunch of points. Um, One of the big ones was I got super burnt out um, from just having to work all the time because I was not charging enough to give myself normal hours. And I mean, what are normal hours whenever you're self-employed? Nobody has them. But it was just constant. I was working like long nights after I put my daughter to bed, just this constant, constant, um, onslaught of builds that I was doing in my shop and people on Instagram were really impressed. They were like, Hey Rachel, like you're constantly putting out new builds, but they didn't see how exhausted I was and how tired I was. So I kind of decided that, you know, I'm either going to charge enough that I can work these hours that aren't going to kill me or I'm going to have to stop doing this because it's just killing me. That idea of burnout is real. And that idea of this is my company, but if the company isn't sustainable, then there's no reason to keep killing myself for it. I should move on because you can work for yourself and you can build your own brand. But if it's not actually a real sustainable thing, then you need to learn to move on or change your business practices like you did. Yeah, absolutely. There are tons of companies that I could have gone to if I was tired of being the boss. And if I was tired of the pressure on me, I could have gone and worked for another furniture company or cabinetry or whatever, brought home the same at that point and been a million times less stressed. So I kind of had to shift my perspective and see like, hey, this isn't working for me. What do I need to take home from every build in order to be able to have any semblance of a work-life balance? So that was a big shift into charging what I want and what I'm worth. Well, a few years ago, I was approached by a casting company to go audition for a show in Calgary, where I was building kind of enclosures and habitats for um, Animal Planet, which was cool. But it kind of woke up to like, hey, this company thinks that I'm worth people seeing. So when I finished that up, I was like, you know what? I did this. They saw something in me. Um, It's not just my imagination. Someone saw that I have talent. So I'm going to charge accordingly. Well, that is definitely a wake up call when you find yourself on TV and you say, I guess I'm the real deal. But it can also come from just understanding your business like you were doing before, where you understood that if this is a real thing, then I need to treat it like a real thing. And I can't have imaginary numbers and I can't have imaginary hours and I have to actually treat it like a business. Anything else you feel like changed for you from when you started to now? And I ask that because because looking back is always so much easier than looking forward. And I know that people listening who are starting their journey can always benefit from hearing advice of someone who's traveled that road already, somebody who's traveled that road and come out confident and successful on the other end. There are other clients that they're a little skeptical, I find, especially because I used to not post a lot of pictures of myself um, on my social media. I tried to let it be mostly the work that spoke for me, but then people would reach out and they'd be like, oh, um, can I talk to the man who builds everything? I'm like, yeah, you're talking to him. That's me. And uh, they're like, no, no, like the guy building, I got some technical questions and I'm like, yeah, that's me. So then I kind of made a conscious decision to, it almost felt like I wasn't representing myself. So I wanted to include kind of who I am 
so that people weren't so surprised. But yeah, I got a lot of that at, in the first couple of years, especially. It's no surprise that you did. And that is an unfortunate part of the business where it is a male of a certain age, of a certain look, dominated industry. And it always has been. But getting your yourself out there and showing that you are the one building it. There's no one standing behind you doing this. You're the one putting all the work in is a very important step in changing that stereotype of the classic furniture builder. Yeah. I mean, there's no ghost crew. It's uh, just kind of me doing my thing, but it always struck me as funny that like someone would approach me based on my work and take the time out of their day to be like, Hey, I want something that you make. But then when they figured out who I am, would kind of change their tune and be like, Oh, I'm not so sure anymore. And I'm like, you saw the results. You saw what I do. And that's why you approached me. But you've decided that because my parts are different than your parts, um, all of a sudden you're not so sure. And that was really frustrating for a while. And so I just decided to skip that whole interaction, post more pictures of myself with my work, kind of get rid of that whole step. You say it's funny and you have a, a good attitude about it because you've, you've been dealing with it for so long and it's something that you've come to expect. But the truth is, and I know you're saying funny because you can shrug it off now, but it's not funny. And it's something that has been prevalent in the industry for a long time and is an issue. Furniture making, like you said, should be based on the product that is turned out at the end of the day and not who's building it. Yeah, absolutely. There are, yeah, it's gone from this thing with some of this crowd where if they did decide to place the order, I would become this kind of novelty when I'd come to deliver. Like, oh, the lady carpenter. And like, would you look at that? Like I'm an exhibit in a zoo. So yeah, it felt really important to me to kind of include that in my brand and give it a little bit more visibility. Um, and now I see it's been so great to see so many other women on Instagram just like crushing it. There's some accounts that are just absolutely amazing that I love to follow and uh, that, yeah, just give it a little bit more of a diverse visibility so people can go and under the same hashtags for woodworker or whatever, see this huge spectrum of diversity and hopefully kind of change the vision of what a furniture maker is or what a carpenter is in their head. I mean, even if that's a long process, at least it's a process. It's a long process, but it is moving forward at sometimes a good pace, sometimes a slow pace, but it is moving forward and you putting yourself out there and you continuing to showcase not only who you are, but even more than who you are, the quality of the work will one day hopefully make the term furniture maker based just on quality of work and not what somebody looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get back to the business side. Your pricing obviously has changed over the years. It's gotten to a point that you can have a sustainable business. You can make the amount of money that you need to make off of each project. So pricing, a hard thing for everybody. Nobody has the right answer, but how do you do it? What is your answer to pricing furniture? Oh, wow. So, I mean, anything paperwork to me, if it sounds like homework, my ADHD kicks in and I'm just like, oh, I hate this. But I kind of had to sit myself down and say, look, you need to actually look at the numbers and decide what you're going to have as your non-negotiables. So I have a set number that's like shop expenses. So things like sandpaper, glue, things I'm going to use on every single project. Sometimes it's more or less, but it's pretty much the average of what I'm going to need for this specific bill. So that gets tacked onto my prices. So that's just a set number for, you know, basic shop consumables. So blades, glue, sandpaper, all that kind of stuff. And then I usually go... 
material times one and a half. And that usually gets me pretty close to the amount of labor that I'm going to be using. If it's a contractor that I'm working for, or if it's a home builder, you can tack on your you know, hourly labor, whatever you decide to pay yourself. But if it's for like smaller clients, they usually want to see kind of a hard and fast number. So if I'm, you know, whatever my materials are, plus my shop expenses times one and a half, that gets me to where I want to be for my final cost. As a custom furniture maker, you get a lot of requests for a lot of different things. It's whatever the client wants you make. And the world of custom furniture is exciting because you get to be building different things all the time, but it also can get confusing when clients are coming to you with all different types of projects. So what does the first conversation with a client look like when they come to you? They say, we want you to build this. You come back with, okay, tell me this. Um, I mean, I have a basic set of questions that uh, I kind of start off an interaction with. So things like I need dimensions. I need to know exactly how big this piece is going to be. I ask for dimensions. I ask for like inspiration pictures. So I know what kind of direction we're headed in Um, and then material choice. So most people have no idea what kind of wood they want something to be made of. So um, when I'm going with hardwoods, it just gives like a brief explanation of the benefits, pros and cons of different things. But I mean, for the most part, my clients seem to have a pretty good idea of what they're looking for and pictures. So kind of work from there. If they don't, I use things like Google SketchUp and just kind of give a quick little mock-up of what my vision for it is and then find out where we don't match. So I'm like, here, this is the mock-up. Circle what you don't like if there is anything and we'll fix it. So the design Felix will also get tacked on. Um, It's usually just an hourly rate. I really like that concept of I'm going to have my idea. They have their idea and we figure out where we don't match. So I don't think I've ever heard it said that way before, but that is the dance. That's the dance when you're doing custom furniture because the client has something in their mind. And when they tell you, you automatically get something in your mind and you have to figure out, like you said, where those ideas don't match. And that can be a difficult process. That can be a lot of back and forth when you're trying to get two people's imagination on the same page. So I do like I do like the way you said that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, sometimes it's even as a very visual person, I forget that not everybody can kind of conceptualize um, what they're looking for. So even putting it into a mock-up, something that someone can look at and be like, yep, that's it. Or you know what, here, here, and here, I'd like it to be a little bit different. And then I'm like, okay, find me a picture of the different that you're looking for, send it to me and I'll put it in. You kind of took the words out of my mouth a little while ago when you said everybody is looking at what you're building and saying you're building a lot of stuff you are putting out a lot of pieces of furniture and i agree with them you have a very solid workflow going on but with custom furniture and with doing so many different types of pieces and still maintaining proper timelines and still maintaining satisfied clients How do you do that? How do you balance your workflow with so many pieces coming through your shop? Well, I have the luxury of having so much space. Um, I have a 60 by 80 shop that I work out of. So I can start. One of the things about having ADHD is I have to start a whole bunch of different projects. And kind of as soon as I hit sort of a mental block or a point where I'm like, ugh, I'm done with this. I can put it aside in some remote corner of my shop, start that next project and get everything in different stages, which sounds kind of chaotic, but when it comes to things like glue ups and finishing, it's really nice to have uh, something else to go do. So if I've got something that needs to dry for 24 hours, that can sit and dry without me having to sit and wait around so I can go start the next project. So it seems as though 
I'm doing all of these things at once. And I guess I am, but they're all in different stages. So it makes it a little bit easier to have um, fast turnover. I'm not waiting around for things like finishes. I'm not getting to a point because everybody gets to the point in projects where they just either are tired of it or they've hit a block and they're like, I don't know how to get around this point in my build. But if you just kind of leave it and come back to it, you come back with fresh eyes and you figure it out. Yeah, it's taking a it's taking a step away. It's being able to to focus on something else and and then come back to that and say, oh yeah, this is what I was missing because I was looking at it too too close up. And yes, it does seem probably at times chaotic having so many things going on. But if you have the space and if you have the workload, then that's how you should be doing it because you're staying productive in downtime. You are taking a shop that if you were only working on one piece would be downtime, would be nothing going on. And you're being able to stagger your pieces and work on things at different times. So yes, chaotic, but appropriately chaotic, I would say. (laughs) I like to think so. It depends who you ask. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, my main thing is when I walk into the shop, I think, okay, what in here is going to have, I guess what I call like passive time. So that's things that are going to take time to dry mostly. So if I've got glue ups, I do those first because you can do other things while that's curing. There's nothing else that's going to happen. You just kind of get that out of the way. And then it leaves me time to do all my cuts, everything else. So glue ups need to be done first. If I've got something in my paint shop, then I do that first, get the first coat on because then I can go do other things, come back to it at the appropriate time, get another coat on and continue on another project. With that process, do you have solid timelines that you give to your clients or do you just give a range? Oh, no, I can't do solid timelines. (laughs) Um, I have like within a two week kind of schedule, um, but I usually give people kind of a ballpark. So at the moment, I book a year in advance. So it's hard to tell exactly the date that I'm going to start something, but I've kind of gotten everything worked down to like beds will take me start to finish a bed will take me three days but I'm doing that in conjunction with other projects so everything kind of overlaps Um, so I'll tell people hey if I've got you in for March let's say we're going to do the last two weeks of March gives me a little bit of flexibility for when I start but having a deadline means that or like a not a hard deadline but sort of soft lines that you know, I've got it in my mind. This is when I need to do it. I need to start it by this date in order to have it finished by two weeks from then. Scheduling when you are a successful company is so incredibly important. And people, when they first start out, they think, okay, this is going to take me X amount of time. So I'll tell the client it will be ready in that amount of time. But as your workload grows, as your orders grow, the amount of time that it takes you to build something isn't equivalent to the amount of time a client needs to wait for it. You have a year long waiting list, but a project will only take you three to four days. So that balance is something that you learn over time. You learn based on figuring out the time it takes you to build stuff, your workflow in the shop, how many orders you have, but It also is something that you need to share with the client and you need to share with them in an appropriate way. How do you tell a client that they want a piece now, they're ordering a piece now, but it's going to be in a year? What does that conversation look like when they have to wait for things? Uh, It's usually a question I ask pretty early on. I'm like, what's your timeline for this? Because there are other people in the area that I can refer them to. Um, It's actually a pretty close community of people that are building furniture. So if they do need something really fast, I kind of know right out the gate, hey, we're not going to be a great fit, but these people are great and refer them on. The nice thing about specifically seeking out um, clients that are working with home builders is their home isn't going to be ready for a year. So, and I mean, as their home comes together, they kind of get a, a pure idea of the sizes they need, what kind of uh, vibe they're going for. So 
that works out really well for my client base, um, people that are building, people that are renovating. But I mean, some people just love my work and I do have a pretty signature, I guess, kind of look to it. So if they're willing to wait, then that's great. Um, smaller projects, like you said, sometimes I do uh, decor or tiny little pieces. Most of those are things I squeeze in between the larger products. So they get a shorter wait time or it's just, Hey, you know what? I'm tired of building beds. I need a creative outlet. I'm going to squeeze in this picture that I started doing recently. So those kind of get squeezed in, but I, yeah, it's something you have to be honest with and upfront with. Your wait time is high. And yes, some of the clients are happy to wait because their homes aren't built. They have nowhere to put the pieces, but a lot of your clients are just coming to you because you've built a brand that people want and they will wait for that just to get one of your pieces. And not only is that a sign of the imposter syndrome going out the door because if people are willing to wait a year for your pieces, you know you're doing something right. But that also leads to another question of how do you build a brand, especially when there are people in your area that can build a piece of furniture in a faster timeline than you can. So your clients aren't coming just because it's a speed thing or a price thing. They're coming to you because you've built a brand around what you do. How did you build that brand and, and how are you sustaining it? So I have a few different kind of styles that I think have become sort of more iconic for my business. Uh, one of them is I do a lot of work with reclaimed wood. So um, sustainability is really important to me. Um, I am a little bit of a hippie. So I things like deforestation that really kind of sits badly with me. Um, I understand that it's a necessity and that technically trees are a renewable resource, but I try to do whatever I can to kind of mitigate my guilt. <laughs> so a lot of the um, styles that I'm using are reclaimed and people have a certain look that they're going for. And what I have become better at, what I've put a lot of work into being better at is matching the vibe that people are looking for. So it's not just, you know, slapping stuff together. It's every aspect of the finish has to be what they want. It's got to look effortless. Um, I've kind of mastered things that are, that have a lot of character that don't look like they were too thought out and sort of have that more antique feel, have that more kind of effortless walked into a farmhouse sort of this was the original piece sort of look to it so it's a new product but it doesn't look necessarily like a new product it looks like something that comes with history and I think a lot of people do kind of resonate with the sustainability side of my business with giving pieces new life and knowing that you know we're not saving the planet let's be honest here but saving a little bit from the local dumps um, keeping the history that comes with uh, local products. I think they really like that. But uh, yeah, I guess my my biggest feature is that I'm going to give somebody exactly what they were looking for. Like every aspect of the finish is going to be bang on. It's not going to be, it's not going to look like something that they walked into a store and came out with something mass produced. It's going to be completely tailored to them. Let's talk about the sustainability aspect a little bit because for furniture makers and especially furniture makers that build things out of wood if you work with enough wood you understand the intricacies of a living piece versus a piece of plastic or printed on grain or something like that but there is that balance of working with wood and the sustainable side of it so is that something that you really broadcast in your business or is that just something that you think about on the back end and know that you're doing your part like you said we're not saving the world but doing your little part to make furniture a little bit more sustainable I mean, I try to be pretty transparent with it, um, especially on my social media channels, uh, without being really preachy. Um, there are 
there's kind of a gradient for ethical choices in woodworking. Obviously, if you're importing a lot of hardwoods, some of those are obtained in more ethical practices than others. So if I were to do a hierarchy of it, um, for me personally, I mean, reclaimed wood is going to be at the top of that hierarchy. It's something that was going to be thrown out anyway. Usually it's buildings that were kind of on their last legs. So that's going to be my like number one choice as far as green materials. And then from there, you're going with local products. So anything that kind of grows in your area. Um, I live in the prairies, so nothing grows in my area. But I mean, any North American woods, so anything that's harvested kind of in this continent would be the next step for me. So oak, maple, poplar, things like that, um, even walnut on occasion. <laughs> um, but yeah, when you go to importing your more exotic hardwoods, do I think they're beautiful? Absolutely. And I understand that the place that they have in the furniture industry is not going to go away anytime soon. But for me, I tend to avoid using them just from an ethical perspective, just either the way they were obtained, the amount of shipping it takes to get something here. Sometimes the chemical process it takes to stabilize those. Those are things that I tend to avoid. I'm even a little bit leery about the use of epoxy just in my own builds. I've done it before. I use it occasionally, but I try to keep even my products sort of as local and as green as they can be. And this idea of sustainability in the pieces you make, is this something that you feel like your customers are looking for and are pushing for? And that is a part of the brand that you've built and why they want to go with you as opposed to somebody else? I think in general, people are more cognizant of the products that they're putting in their home. I think everybody sort of has a little bit more of an awareness of things that are environmentally friendly. I mean, whether or not you care about the actual chemical makeup, a lot of people seem to be focusing more on like locally sourced products. So if your finishes are even locally sourced, I include that in kind of my elevator speech to clients. I try to keep everything as sustainable as possible. So if you're sourcing things from within hundred kilometers around you, it's that much less shipping. It's that much less logistics, that fewer steps between sourcing and the end product. They're a little happier with that. So it does seem to matter to a group of people that I seem to have amassed. The level of how much people care about it definitely ranges. Um, there's definitely an age group that seems to care about it quite a bit more than others. To that, I'm not exclusive in any of the kind of ethics that I try to force on other people. I'm flexible, but you know, it's just something I like to keep in mind. That's the balance of a custom furniture company because you are building from the imagination of other people. And you have to balance your own ideas with that of the client. So I completely hear what you're saying about that, that balance of you having your thoughts on how your furniture company should run and pushing that as far as you can while still being able to take on projects from clients who might not necessarily fall in the exact same thought process as you do. Yeah, absolutely. And if they don't care, they don't care. And that's fine. Um, but the other thing is I don't want to ever sacrifice the quality of the final product for a, a green name, let's say. So if there are products that are more environmentally friendly, but don't give me the end result that I'm looking for, don't give me the finish that I, that the client is asking for or the durability, then I don't use it. It's I'm not sacrificing quality and I'm not sacrificing the final product in the name of saving the planet. <laughs> and that's the other side of sustainability. Well, yes, the materials that go into it have a big say in how that piece affects the bigger picture of the planet. But the idea of building something that is heirloom quality, building something that is going to stick around for a long time is also a big part of sustainability when it comes to furniture, because maybe it's built with materials that aren't locally grown, 
but if it sticks around for a hundred years, then you're not needing to replace that piece of furniture with new materials. Absolutely. And I mean, we've come a long way as far as the quality of like things like water-based products, they're getting better and better, but there is still nothing like an oil-based finish on walnut. It can't be replicated with other products as much as I'd like it to be. So you know what, there is still a place for these products that maybe aren't as environmentally friendly, but they give you the result that you want. They give you the longevity. And yeah, like you said, it saves you from making multiple pieces in the lifespan of that one piece. There are a lot of people out there who are looking to start their own company. Maybe it wasn't as dramatic as they traveled across country with more tools than furniture like you did and and found themselves in a position where they needed to start building stuff. But people come to the furniture industry and the furniture business in a lot of different ways. And So for people who are looking to start a company like you did and are looking to become as successful as you have, what's some advice that you could share to make that happen for them? And also, there's people who were you in the beginning, but there's people like you now who have been doing this for a long time, who are confident in their business, who are established in their brand, but they don't feel like they're getting everything out of their company that they can. So for both those types of people, what's some advice that you could share with them from your own story? Uh, I would say for people that are just starting out, um, if you're not in the position where you're going to get like a formal business loan to pay for all of your new tools, if you're just kind of feeling it out, uh, testing the waters, don't just buy tools without having kind of a project that paid for it. So when I kind of started building my tool repertoire before um, I got to a point where I could work with tool brands, I would have sort of a structure where I was like, hey, this build, I am naming new table saw because that is where not um, my wage is coming from, but anything on top of it, like any of the profit on top of expenses and paying myself is this new table saw. So everything kind of had a purpose. Every new build that I took on was like, all right, you are this new product that I am gonna buy to get my business to the next level that I want it to be at. So it kind of created a real vision for what pieces I needed, what new things were going to increase the value of my work, increase the quality of my work, but everything had a a very kind of trackable process. So it's really tempting to just go out and buy a whole bunch of different tools that you might not necessarily use, that you might not necessarily have the money for. It's really tempting, especially on social media, to see all of these people getting new tools and be like, I totally need that. Um, That's what my business needs. But most of the time, you're going to end up with tools that you never use, uh, speaking from experience. Uh, And then I guess for people sort of where I am that want to continue to grow their business and progress, um, leverage the tools that are available to you. There is social media in every form that you can use, um, whether that's content producing, whether that's just getting your product out there. Um, I know so many people that are hesitant to use things like reels, but honestly, it's so little work involved for the amount of traffic that it brings to your page. And even if it's stupid, so many of mine are very stupid, but I've gotten 2 million views, 3 million views. And that's eyes on my page. That's eyes on my product, whether or not they're in my area, it's creating a buzz about different things. And they have brought me a lot of business, regardless of how dumb I thought they were when I made them. Well, (laughs) branding yourself and advertising yourself and being your own PR company, even if you have a PR company, even if you are advertising in different places, you advertising for yourself is so incredibly important because you have to be your biggest fan. You have to be the person that on the good days and the bad days pushes your company forward, no matter if you are a shop of one person or a shop of a hundred. 
you have to be that beating heart for your company. Absolutely. And I think people underestimate the importance of just kind of being as transparent and as real as possible on those platforms. Nobody really cares if every single post of yours is absolutely perfect and you've never made a single mistake. I've gotten more, I guess, credibility from posting the things I've done wrong and and even the things that I've done before. So in the older um, builds that I did where they haven't held up as well, I make a habit of kind of keeping a really long warranty for when I was not as talented as I am now and just showing those and being like, hey, you know what? This is something that I used to do. It's wrong. Don't do this. But I'm telling you that I've grown from here. And I've found that those get a lot of engagement and kind of brings a little bit of truth to the rest of what I'm posting is, you know what? It's not all perfect, especially for somebody who's self-taught. But here are the mistakes that I make and I'm sure that lots of other people have made them too. And I think it's really important to kind of be true to those mistakes and be like, Hey, I've grown from there. This is how I'm making sure that doesn't happen again. Credibility. Credibility is such an important idea when it comes to the actual building of your furniture and the actual building of your company. And you have a lot of credibility in this industry. And that's why the things that you're sharing are going to be helping so many people who are listening. So I really do appreciate your time and you sitting down and sharing your journey with everybody here. And thank you very much. And I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And this was great. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.